welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Michael Johnston. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Holly Gooch, who is a teacher and a PhD student at Victoria University. Holly is doing her work on twice exceptional children. So Holly, perhaps we could start with what you mean by twice exceptional. Awesome. Okay, so twice exceptional is a term that is used to describe people who are both gifted, but at the same time have some sort of learning difference. And the most common ones referred to are autism and attention deficit and also learning difficulties such as dyslexia. And the term twice exceptional comes from the US system where an exceptionality comes from the disability area and it's students who are exceptional in some way in respect of their learning. And it's also, so the term twice exceptional was used for people who had some sort of a disability but were also exceptional at the other end of the spectrum as well in terms of their giftedness. I see. So we're talking about people who have a challenge on the one hand and on the other an unusual talent or, or propensity to, to be able to do something really well. Absolutely. Are those things often related in, in some way? I, I mean, we might think, I mean, this is a little bit stereotypical, and correct me if it's quite incorrect, but somebody who was autistic, maybe having a certain obsession with a certain activity or something that they can do sort of massively better than anyone else, is it often that kind of thing? Or? Absolutely. So sometimes using the word disability is a bit of a misnomer because for many people it could be the thing that is termed the disability which is actually their strength. So for example, people who are dyslexic can often have really incredible visual spatial talents and are able to see in 3D which can be really useful in terms of design and engineering, those sorts of fields. Similarly, people with ADHD have been shown to be really talented at the early stages of innovation and entrepreneurship. So they have huge drive, energy and ability to see the big picture, to create momentum and to come up with lots of different ideas all at once. And then if you look at autism... In some organisations, autistic people are sought out because of their incredible systems thinking. So, for example, there is a company in Denmark called Specialistern, and it's actually an international company, and they employ only autistic people because of their incredible programming skills. I see. That's fascinating. Of course, one would also want to help them with whatever the challenge was, so... Obviously, a dyslexic person, we'd put a lot of resource into helping them to learn to read. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where some of the challenges are for these learners at school. So, for example, literacy is one of our key ways of participating in education. Yes. So, reading and writing. And so you could have a student who's dyslexic, who's perhaps working in a subject like PE, for example. And in PE, we actually have a lot of reading and writing in PE. And so if they're not given alternative ways to show their knowledge, so through recording videos or through verbalising on an audio file or in a presentation of what they've learnt and what they're capable of doing, then they're missing out on being able to show their their talents. I see what you mean. Of course, literacy is more than just a way of accessing education, although it certainly is that. It's also a way of 
expressing oneself in life, if you can write, I would argue that writing is also an aid to thinking because if we can lay something out in writing and then edit it, it helps us to clarify our thoughts. Reading obviously is a, a source of great pleasure for many people. It's also a source of information. So it can't be just about finding alternative ways, presumably, although I do take your point. Absolutely. So one thing that's been found to be really typical of twice exceptional learners is they have really exceptional and advanced language skills in terms of conversation, so verbalising. So often these students are, it's it can, their giftedness can be identified when they're younger. So they could be precocious talkers when they're three or four or five or six. And they could be really interested in story and love being read to and very interested in film and language in that way. But then as they go further on through the system, if they don't get support to overcome some of the specific barriers that they can have in terms of writing and reading, then that language ability doesn't get you know developed as much and, yes. and they can miss out in that area. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's turn to your research. What, what exactly are you going to be looking at in your PhD? And let's start with that, and then we'll talk about how you're going to go about it. Sure. So one thing I'm really interested in is that I believe that twice exceptional people come up with the most amazing strategies to get around some of the barriers and challenges that they're faced with. And also, I think this group of learners, more so than, than perhaps other learners, have a real need to know really effective strategies for learning and also doing other things to participate in the world. And that's because things can often be quite time-consuming for them, so they need to know really efficient ways of, of learning. And so what I'm going to do in my PhD research is there is a particular framework that has been used to teach learning skills to students in Australia it's been used, and but it stems from some work that's been done in the US. And I want to apply this framework and see if it works for twice exceptional learners. So it's about building up learning skills, so teaching them particular strategies about how to memorise, how to process information, how to recall information and practice for exams or tests, things like that. And But Whenever this framework has been used, generally it's used with a normative population. It's not used with our twice exceptional learners. And so I want to see if that framework is effective in building those learning skills in these students, but also whether it can be effective in building sort of well-being type strategies or anxiety management, for example, or social strategies, doing things such as running a meeting or getting work completed on time, so sort of executive functioning, time management type things. So it does address those kinds of things as well, does it? I, I was going to ask about sort of social skills or, or social interaction. I mean, probably not all of the people who are twice exceptional necessarily have challenges in, in that regard. Certainly autistic people would, people with ADHD might to an extent. So is, is this framework explicitly addressing those sorts of things as it, well as the study skills? It hasn't been used in that way before, so that's what I'm wanting to try out, oh, whether it can also be used for a range of different skills, not just for learning strategies. So, so what, I mean, I'm hearing you say the framework can be used in a number of different ways from 
the sorts of cognitive skills we might engage while studying to social skills like running meetings and and so on what is the framework itself then what 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 does the framework consist of? So the framework involves first teaching students about the actual strategy. So introducing the strategy to them, and explaining it could be what's any strategy. Yep. Yeah. At, at this, yeah, that's how I'm going to use it. And then it also looks at encouraging them to giving them the opportunity to actually see for themselves that the strategy could be useful. So it's about creating a strong belief that the strategy is useful. So typically, often in schools, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself, we might introduce the strategy to students and then we, and we tell them it's a great strategy and they should use it, and then we leave them to go to it. But this framework involves giving them the opportunity to try out the strategy and compare it with other strategies to see whether it is indeed better and so that they create that strong belief for it. Then you're also looking at encouraging them to have a commitment to actually using it. So for me, for example, one thing I want to do is give students a range of different strategies and get them to commit to one that they think is really going to make a difference for them because it might be address something that is meaningful or relevant to them. Right. And so once you've got that commitment, then the framework encourages teachers or facilitators to help students to plan where they're going to do that. So, for example, if the strategy was around reading complicated text, for example, and perhaps the strategy might be asking questions of the text before you start reading because we know that that's effective in making you pull the information you need from a text when you read it. So it might involve having a reminder on the bit of paper that they're going to read for them to use that strategy. So it's not just about saying, oh yes, I'm going to use that strategy. It's actually putting reminders and prompts and tools in place that actually makes that happen in real life. Right. So they don't get distracted by, you know, using their usual strategies. And, and will the strategies you focus on be related to their area of challenge? So if it was a dyslexic person, you'd focus on reading and writing, for example? What it's going to be more focused on will be something that's relevant to them. So I'm wanting to use it in the context of a project that in, is involved in their strength. So say, for example, we had a student who was passionate about the history of film in New Zealand. And so perhaps they wanted to create a documentary about film in New Zealand and design an event where people get to come and see this documentary. And so they might have all the film skills in the world and they could have all of the you know, the know-how in terms of researching and so on. But the bit they might struggle with is the organising the event. Right. And so that might be something that they want to work on. So that would be where we'd grow the skills in terms of the executive function and the time management and the planning and mapping and looking forward and breaking big tasks down into little tasks. But it's going to be more relevant to them because it's related to the area of strength, I which is creating mean. a film and exploring their interest in the history of film. So you're leveraging their area of strength and interest 
to assist them with their area of challenge. Absolutely. So one of the things that, that's a, a fundamental premise of working with twice exceptional students because we know, you know, gifted students can get bored really quickly if they're not engaged and if they're doing something that's rote or repetitive. They need lots of novelty and lots of stimulation, but at the same time they might struggle in some other areas so sometimes we make the error of focusing and making them do the thing that they're struggling with over and over and over and over again. But the best way to do that is to put it in the context of something they're motivated about and that they're passionate about. And then they're going to want to do that. They're going to see the purpose and the reason for doing that. And they're going to be more motivated to overcome those difficulties to get it done. Right. So, I mean, that all makes a great deal of sense and, and certainly as an hypothesis for research sounds very promising and I guess if it works out then you've you've got a tool that can really help these kids to meet their challenges and make the most of their strengths. How will you know if it's worked? What what, what kind of a research approach will you take? That's a really, really good question and one we're exploring at the moment. So yeah, so I'm still quite early on my PhD journey and that's what we're wanting to figure out. And some of it is going to be... I, one thing we I definitely want to do is triangulate and get information for data from lots of different places. So part of it might be, you know, the outcomes of the project they've tried to do. Some of it might be the students' own reflections about what has been helpful for them and what what they're doing differently now that they, you know, that they weren't doing before. But also looking at people like parents or employers or teachers that have worked with the student as well and getting them to give feedback into what they've noticed is is different. So, yeah. And another big aspect too is going to be some sort of well-being or mental health type measures. So right. a lot of twice exceptional students, when they sort of get to teenage age, they can be impacted by mental health issues and concerns. And often it's just just sheer exhaustion from masking and coping and coming up with unique strategies all the time. And yeah, so when they're teenagers, often, you know, they it, it can result in anxiety and depression. Yeah. And so one of the things I'm hoping this will do is when people have got st- some strategies and some positive reframing about their identity as a twice exceptional person and the opportunity to focus on their strengths rather than, you know, always being asked to work on their difficulties, yes. whether that might actually impact on their mental health outcomes as well. Will you use measures such as, you know, reading measures or something like that if, if the area of challenge is reading or whatever other measure might be appropriate depending on the, the um, area of, 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 in which you're focusing? Unlikely because I really want it to be an applied thing. So, for example, all dyslexics can read, for example. So one of the things we think is is that if you're dyslexic, you can't read. But most dyslexics do read, it just takes longer and they might read differently and they might need to approach the text in a different way. So for example, they might need lots of background and things before they start reading and also they need to be really motivated to want to read the particular text. And so there are plenty of very well-read academics who are dyslexic. That's true. So it's more about, it's not about what they're able to do, it's whether that is useful to them. So did building up the strategy or the skill 
did that result in them being able to do something faster or more efficiently or with less stress, those sorts of things, or did it help them achieve their goals? So it's, it's perhaps more about motivation than about the cultivation of the skill as such. I think it's more about using effective strategies. Like I said before, we all have strategies for how we go about learning tasks, but some of those strategies are ineffective and can take a long time. And if you've got a learning difficulty or you're autistic or have ADHD and the learning environment is really inherently challenging for you anyway because of the huge amounts of sensory information and social interaction and so on, then you need to be using the most effective strategies because you're already quite tired. So, yeah, so it's about improving the effectiveness of their strategies. Right. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me about dyslexia in particular is is that a lot of the time the issue is just that somebody hasn't been taught to read properly. And we identify dyslexia on the basis of them not meeting certain reading benchmarks at a certain age... And then we assume that it's a problem with them when actually the methods of literacy instruction that have been used in this country predominantly for the last two and a half decades, well, they've failed. And we've seen the results of that in recent NCEA literacy trials that in which 2% of decile 1 kids met the writing standard and only a third of them overall. And, so, and reading was better, but it was still not great. So it seems to me that with some of these things at least, we need to focus on how we've been doing things in general. And I, I can't comment so much on things like ADHD because I, I know less about that, but it, it occurs to me that those problems may also be exacerbated by some of the learning environments we have now, which are so large with perhaps 100, 120 kids and multiple teachers and I've no doubt they can be managed well, but I suspect a lot of the time they're not and that they're often noisy and chaotic and and that people with ADHD or auditory processing deficit, these kinds of things where attention is challenged, are not going to do well in those environments. So I guess what I'm asking you is, do you think we need to pay attention to the background of the education system, whether it's instructional methods in literacy or physical environments like the open learning environments we have now and the effects that they're having on these kids. Absolutely. So one of the things that I'm doing sort of in the broader picture around my PhD is that I'm wanting to set up a a foundational program that goes between high for 16 to 18 year olds between high school and university where they'd have the opportunity to learn in a twice exceptional friendly environment and this is where I'm wanting to do my PhD research in supporting these skills with these students and what I'm really hoping is that in the future we won't need a program like that because twice exceptional students are well catered for in the mainstream system so at the moment I don't believe that they are well catered for in the mainstream system and I think there's all sorts of reasons for that. The one that concerns me the most is how poorly giftedness is understood for example throughout the education system and equally we're still, teachers in their general education system is still struggling to get its head around neurodiversity and how that impacts, how neurodivergence impacts on what students need in the in the classroom and in the school system. Yeah. And I think until 
teachers in the education system as a whole, I include, you know, policymakers and the people training teachers, have a better understanding of those things, it's going to be very hard to address their needs. Yeah. What you're saying actually puts me in mind of something Frederick Nietzsche wrote in the 19th century about education. He said that education in state systems is usually poor for the same reason that cooking in large kitchens is usually bad, which is obviously to say that we're trying to do something en masse and so it doesn't do well with people who are unusual in some way or another. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm pretty excited. I think we are at a really interesting stage in terms of education I think things have been really shaken up in the last few years and I think people are beginning to think a lot more in terms of the individual picture and individual programs and I think that this comes out of parents having to be much more aware of what their students of what their children are doing at school when they had to become involved during COVID. Also I think teachers have had to be more lenient around students' different needs, whether that was IT needs or their ability to come into school. You know, lots of school uh, students couldn't come into school for quite a long time, so they had to find something else to cater for them. I also think there's, hu- you know, with the huge absences and, you know, a lot of that is due to mental health issues, certainly, at, at, especially at high school, as far as I can see. We're starting to think about, okay, what, how can we alter the students' learning programs so it's you know going to be useful to them because they're not able to access some things? And so I think, yeah, I think it has given us an opportunity to think more about the individual. But it's how can we how can we do that but still keep high standards? And also, how do we do that for so many different students all at once? Right. Very interested in your the comment you made that you don't think that schools are grappling particularly well with giftedness. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. I, I mean, my understanding of, of giftedness, and again, you know, co- correct me if, if I haven't got it quite right, but it seems to me that, you know, people vary in their propensities on various activities. Some people are astonishingly good at mathematics and others read voraciously and and so on. So when we're talking about gifted people, are we talking about the positive tail of a a distribution? So just the people who happen to be really great at this particular thing, is that that a reasonable definition of of giftedness? I think it's broader than that. I think there are a whole bunch of traits and characteristics that come with a gifted learner. So it might not be just that they achieve really well. In fact, a lot of gifted students don't achieve well simply because they're bored, they can't engage. Sure, I'm not really talking about their formal achievement, but their propensity to be drawn to doing something and, and, and doing it really well when they're motivated. Yeah. So it's the attributes around yeah being incredibly curious about something, incredibly insightful and knowledgeable about something with very little input and their ability to drive their own learning and follow their own interests and do their own research and teach themselves. And it's also yeah, just yeah, a passion and a willingness to dive really deeply into a topic and at the same time also have an incredible thirst for a breadth of knowledge as well because they they get joy from finding connections between different areas, for example. So it might be different subjects, you know, finding the connections between different subjects 
and maybe perhaps interests in areas that don't fit neatly into different subjects as well, which often we don't notice, especially at high school when, you know, a teacher is focused on one particular subject, but what a student might be interested in is just outside that. So, yeah, so I think it's more than just the the tail end. It's also some specific sort of characteristics that sort of describe a gifted learner. Yeah. Right, and, and you mentioned that there's a risk to their formal achievement if they're, if they're not stimulated correctly, if, if they become bored. And that, that makes perfect sense. Do you think that is the heart of the problem with the way schools grapple or don't grapple well with gifted children? Yeah, so I think, I mean, every child deserves the right to an education and there are some kids that are going to school and haven't learnt anything an entire year or an entire day at school and so they are not having their right to education met. If you come to school and you know everything that you're being taught already, you're not getting an education. So it's about identifying where a student is actually at and so for example, one of my big learnings when I first started teaching was around with PATs, you know, the, yes. the These are standardised tests. Pro- yep. Progressive achievement tests in literacy and numeracy and a few other things now. Ab- that, that's for listeners who may not know. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that was a real penny drop for me was when if a student gets a nine, stay nine nine, which is the top stay nine on all of on, on those tests. So that'd put them in the top two and a half percent of kids or so. Yeah. It tells you nothing about what they're actually capable of doing because perhaps they could get nine in the the level up test, the yep. one after that, the one after that. Yep. So the idea of you've got to keep testing to you, we really need to find out where they're at, not just. So if they're a stay nine nine, that doesn't mean great. They've already achieved everything we have to do for this year. They're doing super. It actually it start that raises a question. That's just the beginning of the journey. So right. if they're stay nine nine in this year, well, what year are they actually working at, and what sort of material and and resources do they actually need to be working at? I see. Yes. In fact, I suspect it's even worse than that. I, I think quite a lot of the time that kids who score at stay nine five, which is average, they'll just be thought to be perfectly all right and left to their own devices and, and then, you know, the teacher may focus on the ones who are struggling to meet the, the average. But certainly those who are at that, that very top end, they're not going to draw a lot of attention, are they, unless they start to behave less well because they're bored and I'm sure that happens to an extent and in fact yeah. I may have some personal experience in that regard in my yeah. past, what sort of resources are teachers going to need? Because it's not necessarily obvious what to do for the kid who scores not only at stay 9-9 at their year level, but stay 9-9 three years ahead. And I guess the, the, this is part of what your work is geared towards doing. But each child is obviously quite unique who's in that category. Mm. So what tools do teachers need to be able to operate with, with children like that and see that they get the extension and the stimulation yeah. they need. Absolutely. So I think one of the biggest tools teachers could have is curiosity. So it's just like if you go to the doctors with a really severe problem and they give you a test and say, well, you haven't got this thing, that does nothing for your severe problem. It, so what you want them to do is is keep experimenting and trying to find out, well, what what is the, the actual 
problem that this person is, is suffering from. And I guess it's the same with students as well. It's keep on keeping on trying all sorts of different things to find out where that student is at and to, to always be curious about what is behind the things that they're seeing in the classroom. So, you know, digging deeper. And But in order to do that, I mean, obviously they need to have the know-how and the the time to do that. So one thing we know is that very little about neurodiversity or giftedness is covered in teacher training programs. And so that's not a great start. I mean, that would be an obvious place to start, would be to, you know, have some awareness raising at least at the very minimum in teacher training programs about giftedness rather than leaving it to the gifted coordinator of the school or yeah whoever has that responsibility yeah yeah what would you say to a teacher who said well you know I could put a lot of time into this kid who's off the scale in, in this particular area but really it's the kids who are struggling that I need to concentrate on because, because this kid will be all right he or she is going to go far. Why, why would I spend lots of time on them when I've got all these other kids who are really struggling to even learn to read at all or to, or to learn their numeracy at all? Why, why focus on the exceptionally talented ones? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes down to, again, that that right for education. Every single kid in that class has a right to education. And so every single one of them should be getting the opportunity to learn something new that day. And what it is that they learn is complete, could be completely different across the class. So, you know, ensuring that we provide those opportunities. I do really feel for teachers, having been one myself, I know that I struggle to meet the needs of all of the students in, in my classrooms. And I think you know, perhaps it needs a significant change in terms of, so as a secondary school teacher, for example, I would see, you know, uh, most of my students, you know, two or three times a week and counting for interruptions and all sorts as well. So that doesn't give you, and you only see them for 45 minutes at a time, that doesn't give you a lot of opportunity to really get to know them. So rethinking the, the relational aspect of, between teachers and students is, I think, a really important thing to do so that there is a teacher for every kid in every school that knows that student really well. I think a lot of students get through high school and don't have a single teacher who knows them well. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think the relational aspect is really important. Yeah, it seems to me as well we need to think about things that teachers are asked to do now that perhaps they don't really need to do, either because they don't need to be done at all or because somebody else could be doing that so that our teachers can spend that time getting to know each child and what he or she needs to advance as as best he or she can. And I really agree with your point that every child has a right to an education that gets the best out of them. And I think, too, one of the things that we're at risk of if we don't build up the skills and talents of our gifted kids is that, like I've said before, mental health issues can be a huge issue for people who are really gifted and then, and but just don't have the opportunity to learn anything new or to grow or to extend themselves or to be with people that they can relate to. So that's a real risk. But also, 
it's a huge waste of talent exactly. in New Zealand. We absolutely so I my my thing with twice exceptional learners is that they are out of the box thinkers. Yeah. And by definition, they think differently to most people. And so we have so many out-of-the-box problems, and so we need people that can think in that way mm. in order to solve some of these really complex problems that we've got at the moment, you know, that we're just not making progress on. They're the great scientists and artists and writers of the future, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Holly, thanks so much for joining us today. and. You know, all the very best with your research. And I think maybe when you've got some results, would you like to come back and we'll talk about Absolutely. this again? Absolutely, that'd be cool. Great. Thanks, Holly. Thanks.